ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. When my guest today was walking to school back in Boston in the States, she'd pass a music store where the owner had wired up speakers outside and would play Motown hits out onto the street and she and the other kids would stop and dance along. Marsha Hines has always loved music, loved to sing, but she was a complete unknown when she was cast in the musical Hair at just 16. She had to move across the world from Boston to Sydney for the part, and she planned to stay just for the show's six-month run. But 53 years later, Marsha Hines is still here and touring the country with a new collection of her greatest hits called Still Shining. Hi, Marsha. Hey, how are you doing, Sarah? Really well. Good. As I say, you, you grew up in Boston. What was mm-hmm. your hometown like in the 50s and 60s? What do you remember? Oh, it's a beautiful place. Boston, Massachusetts is a great place. It was a great place to, to grow up because we still had backyards and lots of um, land. And so my mother had a beautiful um, vegetable garden and we'd pick the vegetables, you know, when they ripened on the vine or whatever. We made a lot of cubby houses in the yard with the trees that fell or wood that we could find. And um, yeah, I was a mountain climber. I had a brother who was 18 months older than me, so I was always trying to compete with him. <laughs> had, you, had your mum and dad grown up in the States? No, my mum and dad are from Jamaica, from Kingston. And so what brought them to, to America? A better life. So like most West Indian people, they moved to America for a better life better lifestyle and to bring up their children. And so my mom and dad met in Boston, in actual fact. And um, they got married and had my brother Dwight and I. And then you lost your father really young, Marsha. Mm, what, yes. what happened? He had been in war and they had taken shrapnel. They were taking shrapnel out of a part of his chest and he died on the operating table. So you don't miss what you you don't have Sarah. Mm. And so I don't know of him, but I was always told that he just adored me and that's all I needed to know, you know. <laughs> Were yeah. there photos of him around? No, no photos. When my when my dad um, died, my mother moved and unfortunately the removalist stole quite a, a few things oh. and one of the big boxes or several of the big boxes they stole, I think, you know, it's not a nice thing to do to a widow with two kids, but they did it. And a lot, even my, I think I've only got two photos of me, Sarah. Wow. From being a child, yeah. Your, your godfather played an important yeah. role in your life. Tell me about him and what you called him. Oh, his name was Mr. Evans, and he called me Cupcake. So <laughs> I don't know why. And I still think that's just the cutest name. But yeah. But he was Mr. Evans to you. That's pretty Ms. formal. Always Mr. Evans, always. But um, as black children, you could never call an adult by their first name. It was always Mr. Always. And so what sort of things would you and Mr. Evans do together when you were little? Oh, gosh. Well, I, I think I used to bother him a lot. I <laughs> I don't know that he appreciated it, but I mean, he'd come and, and visit and he would um, bring, like I said, cupcakes, because I loved cupcakes. He'd bring cupcakes and he nicknamed me that. And then sometimes during the summer, we'd go to Cape Cod and fish. And so we'd wake up about four o'clock in the morning to drive to the Cape. And then, I don't know, he knew all these fishing places and my brother and I and my mom would fish. And then the best part of that day was we'd go to McDonald's because McDonald's was something you had maybe twice a year. <laughs> if you were lucky. <laughs> so, and we'd drive to McDonald's and then go home with, you know, fish, fish all over our hands and stuff. But he was a great, a great godfather, mm. just a great godfather. Yeah. 
So your mum left with two little kids and, and having to support you in, in, you know, a country that she hadn't grown up in. How mm-hmm. did she do that? What sort of work did she do? My mother was a housekeeper, you know, so she did housekeeping for very wealthy families. She, that's how she took care of us. That's hard work. Did you ever yeah. go, go along with her on, on those oh, days? Oh, no, I'd probably break something. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, but um, I knew a, a few of the people that she tended house for because I was very sick as a kid. And um, there was one guy called Dr. Rubin, and he was able to get incredible medications for me and incredible treatments for my asthma. So I knew Mr. Rubin. And I knew maybe a couple more, but not that many because, I mean, that was her job, you know, so. And so did she have strict standards at home about cleanliness and tidiness? Well, not really. She was kind of messy. I was a really tidy one. You know, I've always been really, I like housekeeping. People say, what? I love, because, you you know, you get something when you clean the house, you know, you you, you can stand back. In actual fact, when I clean something, a room, I'll take a picture of it. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and uh, I had a, a roomie, a really good friend of mine called Sue, and um, she was like kind of like Denny's nanny back in the day. We'd clean the house and take pictures then, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so, so what values were important to your mum? What, what mattered to her? If it wasn't cleanliness as much as that mattered to you, what did she care about? Kindness and humility. Kindness and humility. Mm. My mother was a very kind person, and um, but she didn't suffer fools, nor do I. Yeah, she was really kind. And I'd come home from school when I was about 11 or 12, then 13, and my friends would be sitting in the house talking to my mother about their problems. That's my mom, you know? <laughs> How dare you? <laughs> was, was she musical, Marsha? I mean, do you remember her singing around no, the house? Or? I don't remember her, but her best friend Ruth told me, a friend in Boston said, when mom moved to wherever we were living, I think it might have been Parker Street or something, she said um, she heard this beautiful song. And she said, wow, she thought it was the radio. And she spoke to my mother when she got to know my mom and said, Esme, were you singing? She said, no, it wasn't me. Anyway, it was her. But And then I'd come home, and we've always had a piano in our house, always. And um, I'd come home in Sydney, and I'd open the door, and she'd be at the piano playing it. And as soon as I um, walked in, she'd say hi and get up close the piano, walk off. <laughs> Why do you think she hid that from you, no, that talent? It was, it was her thing, oh. you know, it was her thing. So I don't, I don't ever question people. I mean, you know, people often say to me, oh, I've got a child that's very um, talented. I said, really, really? How old are they? <laughs> oh, they're nine. Oh, are they? Okay, well, my advice to you is don't make what they do a party trick, hmm. okay? If they're musical now, they'll be musical later. And when they want to sit at the instrument, let them do it. Don't make it a party trick, because if you do, they're going to hate it. And that's what my mother was like. That was her thing. Just loved music, because there was always music, either music or talk back in our house, yeah. What sort of stations did she listen to? What kind of music? In Boston, and she used to listen to a station I still have on my um, iTunes, WGH, which is a very smart, intellectual radio station out of Boston. And then she would listen to um, gospel radio stations. And, you know, Nat King Cole, Sarah Vaughan. Ella Fitzgerald, Mel Torme. Yeah. One uh, woman who did let you hear her sing was your godmother. <laughs> yeah. Tell me about Florence James. Oh, she was a lovely lady. She was blind. And um, she's a big woman. At least I love her cuddles. <laughs> <laughs> it was like the warmest place in the world. She'd cuddle me whenever she saw me. And um, she had a beautiful ivory-coloured piano in her house. And she'd 
be playing it all the time. And she was the head singer, the lead singer in her Baptist choir. And so um, children were not allowed in the choir box, but because she was blind, I was allowed to sit with her. And I actually realized and learned what sit still means. Yeah, I had to sit still. And what did you learn about singing from from sitting next to her or watching her sing? On projection. She had a really big voice, like a really big voice because she was lead singer. So, you know, I just learned projection and I just love listening to all the ladies sing because there, there weren't any men in her choir, but there were all these really beautifully talented ladies who only sang on Sunday. Or maybe they sang around the house, but I didn't grow up around any performers, not whatsoever. And singing in church, you know, it's it's a different thing than singing mm-hmm. just for entertainment, isn't it? It's it's yeah. spirit. So it's praise. It, it, yeah, mm-hmm. is that still infuse your attitude to your oh. voice and to singing? Mm-hmm. You know, whenever, and I do listen to another radio station out of L.A. called KJLH, and that's owned by Stevie Wonder. And um, on on our Monday, it's their Sunday. And so they play all gospel music for, you know, 24 hours. And I, I tend to listen to that. I really do like gospel music. I recorded an album called The Gospel According to Marsha. But that made me feel like I was coming, I'd come home, Sarah. It was lovely. What was the atmosphere like inside that Baptist church? Glorious. It was happy. I mean, the preacher would get a bit dark every once in a while. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, you know, it was happy. Yeah, you know, and uh, in a um, Baptist church, there's usually a bass player, a drummer, uh, an organ player, a guitarist, um, a serious singer with a great tambourine, you know. So I went back home recently to L.A., and I was doing something in L.A., and um, I went to a church. Someone took me to a church, and it was the Greater Bethany Church, it's called. I'm watching this preacher on the pulpit. I'm thinking, jeez, he reminds me of some... Gosh, and his gesticulation, and his... <laughs> when he laughed, I'm thinking, gosh, this guy... Anyway, I called my cousin in Washington. I said, Donna, I went to this really cool church in L.A., and this guy called Noel Jones was the preacher. She said, oh, mm, that's your cousin. What? And I saw my brother. He, he was like, my, it was the weirdest thing. Because I'm looking, I'm looking at this guy on the pulpit thinking, God, he reminds me of somebody. <laughs> yeah, and so I, I found out that Noel Jones and Grace Jones are my cousins. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's, that's a Crazy. pretty impressive, some yeah. impressive connections. It was pretty, well, yeah, I was surprised. Because, I mean, and Don is totally in the family tree into the family tree thing, not me. You were hearing and and singing this fabulous gospel music inside of church. What about outside of church, Marsha? What were you listening to growing up? Oh, gosh. Jimi Hendrix, Janis Joplin, Yusuf Latif, um, you know, like Aretha, Gladys. A lot of big um, voices there. Yeah, Supremes. Um, I used to love Martha and the Vandellas. And when I, when I started to sing in the talent shows with my girlfriend, I'd always sing Martha and the Vandellas. Tell me about that walk to school and that exposure to, to music there. That was great. That was after school. So we would um, be let out of school as you do and everybody would go crazy. And um, we'd run up the street. And then in an area not close to me, but just sort of down the road, in an area I wasn't really allowed to go to, but I had to walk through there after school. This guy had these speakers outside of his music shop. He wasn't stupid. And so <laughs> we, we all stood outside dancing, you know, and, and when and if I had money, I would buy a 45. 
And when it came to your own singing, was it something you knew you could do, like, even when you were a little kid? Mm. Mm, What are some of your early memories of that voice of yours? Listening to the radio on Sunday when um, they'd play the top, you know, was 50 or top 10 music that was happening in America at that time. And I just remember just sidling up to the radio, you know, and it was a big one. It was one of those big wooden things, you know, that was a piece of furniture. And I just sidled up to it and sing and mimic and... um, but I thought the people lived inside Sarah, actually. <laughs> I love the imagination of a child. But yeah, I, I actually thought they were in there with their instruments and singing and stuff. Because your, your voice, even from early recordings, has got such a power, such a maturity. Look, I, at one point I was um, lucky enough to um, get a scholarship at the New England Conservatory of Music for opera. For opera. So I could be yeah. speaking to Marsha Hines, the opera diva, right now. <laughs> no, no, that was Joan Sutherland, our one and only. <laughs> our one and only. She's brilliant. So, so what happened? How did it um, suit you? Well, because I was a teenager and um, I, I, like all the people I just mentioned that I was totally into, I wasn't into opera, but they did give me some great um, discipline in the sense about warming up your voice, standing properly. And projection. So I I took all those things and added it to the mix for me. You mentioned talent shows with your your friends. Mm -hmm. Tell me about those. Where did they happen? Oh, they happened in Boston. So my girlfriend, Linda, Linda Gaines, and I'm still very close to Linda, she and I would enter talent, never win them, but we'd enter them. Wouldn't so, win them? Gosh, there must have been some talented kids you were up yeah, against. Yeah, you bet there were. But I mean, was I prepped? I probably wasn't prepped properly, but I always made sure I had a nice dress. <laughs> that matters. <laughs> you know it does, right? It's a girl thing. And so um, Linda and I would um, enter them. And then um, Linda's sister left Boston to perform in Germany. And she did Porgy and Bess, and then she did hair, and then she turned into Donna Summer. Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay, they're talented kids. Yeah, (laughs) they were talented kids, they were. And how was it the first time you were on stage? Were you nervous or did it feel natural to you? Gosh, what a memory. Well, I remember. I remember looking up thinking, you got two choices, you run or you go on stage. (laughs) I was so nervous because, you know, there had been people before me on stage at the Talent Quest. And I remember looking up at the lights thinking, Oh, have I done the right thing here? And I might have been about 11 and a half, 12. And uh, I thought, you can, you got two choices. You run and don't do it. Or, by the way, my name was Shante Renee. Shante <laughs> Renee. Yeah, I thought it was a bit plain, Marsha Hines, you know. <laughs> <laughs> you wanted a French, a French yeah. inflection. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so um, I actually walked on. And I remember, I remember, I did okay. I think, you know, back in the day, you, you didn't have a band. I sang to a record, yeah? Hmm. And they turned you up louder than... It was a Martha and the Vandellas song. And then I remember later on in the day, I, I went to the toilet and I was in a cubicle and someone said, hey, you know, that's Shantae Renee, she can sing. I went, oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Honest That's feedback. my earliest... Me- that's truly my, truly my earliest memory of performing. <laughs> and what did your mum think about your singing and, and performing on stage? Was she a supporter? Oh, yeah, she was because um, we used to have an annual thing in the church called the mother, the mothers and daughters banquet. And every child would do something for their mother in front of a, an audience. And we'd have a great big meal and talking. My mother came home one day with a, um, a 45 and said, would you, would you mind singing this song for me for the mother and mothers and day in the, for the banquet? And I went, 
yeah, sure, mm. Ma, you want me to sing for you, I'll sing for you. And so I took my brother's amplifier, he played guitar. I took Dwight's amplifier on the back porch and cranked up the... Um, <laughs> <laughs> My neighbors must have hated me. I cranked up the um, 45 and sang, and that's how I learned the song. But I do remember singing, and I remember not seeing anybody's face. I only saw shoes because hmm. I, I just I couldn't look up. I remember That's all I remember, the, the circular table and lots of shoes. And then Mom said, you did a very nice job. I said, thanks, Ma. <laughs> uh, and, of course, as you're a, a teenager, you're living through this amazing period in, in mm. popular music. And I think it was when you were 16, a little farm not too far from Boston was preparing itself to host a music festival. How yeah. did you get yourself along to Woodstock as a teenager? Well, like I said, you know, in Boston, they have concerts during the summer in the Commons. And the park is called the Commons in Boston. And um, they have incredible musicians. And this radio station kept blaring over the summer that they were going to have this incredible concert up in a place called Woodstock. And I remember saying to my mom, can I go? Can I? She said, hell no. <laughs> no, you can't go. And I went, oh, my. She said, no matter how much you beg me, you can't go. And so lo and behold, I was the babysitter on our street for a lady called Honore. And the baby was called Honore. And so Honore's mom went down to my mom and said, I, I want to go to Woodstock. And um, would you mind me taking Masha? She can babysit Honore. My mother said, sure. Oh, perfect. <laughs> you got to love it, right? And then, and so I went and um, I remembered this just recently that we got to the gates at Woodstock and we tried to pay. The guy said, please just go in. I've lost count. <laughs> <laughs> and so we got in and it was lovely and we sort of set up camp. And the little girl hated it. She wanted to go home. And so the mom said, oh, we're going to go home. I said, bye. So, <laughs> so I stayed. I actually ran into friends from camp and everything. Yeah. And, and what? which performers stand out when you think back? Who grabbed oh, you? Or was it the, the experience that made the bigger impression? All, all, all of the above. I think um, Sly and the Family Stone mm. are pretty cool. Mm. And Alo Guthrie, Country Join the Fish. Um, Jimmy was great. Jimmy Hendrix was great, but he came on late. But I love the the um the great announcements, you know, like such and such from Oklahoma has just had a bad trip. Can somebody come and get him? <laughs> I remember all that stuff. But, you know, back in the day, nobody was hurt. Nobody was harmed. That hippie revolution was an incredible time to be grown up. And when you saw those amazing performers on stage, did you dream like one day no, I want no. that to be me? No, no, I've never really had that thing where I want to be a star thing. No, I just wanted to sing. And so if I got a gig, I'd be a happy girl, you know. And if I could work and pay my rent, that would be great. So it was never, oh, I'm going to be a star. But back in the day, it wasn't like that. It happened organically. Well, how did it happen organically for you? How did you get the opportunity to go from, you know, singing at church and talent quests around your <laughs> home in Boston to, to starring, appearing in, in this musical hair in Australia? Well, good old Linda that I spoke about earlier, she auditioned for hair in Boston and said, look, I'm in, I'm in. Come and do it. She's a mad woman, by the way. Come and do it. And I went, no, Linda, I don't want to be stuck in Boston. This is a great thing. I'm glad you got the gig, but I don't, I'll go to New York or Washington, but I just don't want to be stuck in Boston. And then lo and behold, Sandra McKenzie and Jim Sharman were holding auditions specifically for black kids for the parts and hair in Australia. And so um, a friend of mine heard about it, and he was a Shakespearean actor. And they said, you're good, but you're just 
you're too good. We, we, we want rough diamonds. He said, I know just the girl. And so he said, but she's underage. I'll speak to her mother and see what her mother's got to say. And he spoke to my mom and my mom said, this is an incredible opportunity. Do you want to do it? I went, yes, I'll, I'll go. And I auditioned and maybe 14 days, if that later, I was on a plane to Austria. To Austria? Is that no. where you thought you were going? <laughs> Where's all the snow? <laughs> yeah, well, people, people, you know, you know, people don't believe me, but you, we didn't learn much about Australia back then, you know? And so, yeah, so, you know, it was wonderful. It was absolutely wonderful. So, so your mum obviously had this faith in you and belief yes. in you to encourage you to go and take this big step. But what about you? Were you nervous to fly? No, you're 16. Not- you're bulletproof. No, what am I going to be nervous about? I'd already seen the show. My mother and I sat in the audience and watched a performance of the show. And she said, oh, there's a nude scene. How do you feel about that? I said, I don't think I'm going to do that. No, I don't think. And because I was underage, I didn't have to, hmm. right? And so I got to Sydney and, um, yeah, about maybe a few days later, I was doing the nude scene because I understood what it actually represented and meant. You know, it was a protest. And that felt okay to you? It felt fine and safe. Most importantly safe. The thing about the nude scene, people don't realize, if you if you blinked, you missed it. And it was dimly lit and we, we appeared from under a silk parachute and we were all choreographed. You couldn't just stand there and, and shake your stuff. You actually <laughs> had to stand there in a certain kind of stance. So as you, you, you say, Marsha, you thought you were actually heading to Austria. So yes. how, what, what stood out about Australia when you arrived? What seemed strange to you? Everything. Because, you know, in, in Boston, or and we used to spend time in New York, you can get a suit made at 2.30, 4 o'clock in the morning, you know? Everything closed. It was like, what? You mean, what, what do you Where mean I can't? City? What do you mean I can't go to the drugstore after 12? Oh, what do you mean the butcher closes? <laughs> Why? You know, that was weird. But the upside of all that was I was in the company of a great, group of people, the kids in the show, the cast wasn't called, referred to as the cast, referred to as the tribe. Hmm. And they all were really nice guys, really nice people. And the probably Vietnam pretty War. attractive to a 16-year-old. Oh, Who caught your eye in oh, that John tribe? Waters. John Waters. You're only human, Marsha. Yeah, thank you very much. And he still does. <laughs> I love, no, John has become a great friend. I couldn't even speak in front of John because I'd never heard such a, a refined English accent before. And he'd talk and I'd go, oh, gosh, goodness gracious. <laughs> and, and how were you treated around town? Like, it's arrival of this tribe of hippies from all parts of the world to be in this show here. How, how did Sydney receive you? Well, we were the toast of the country, much less the town. You know, I mean, like, it was the most popular show in the world and most controversial. It was all great, but you need to know that we all believed we were going to change the world because I think war is a really bad thing. And um, the Vietnam War, during my time in Hare, a lot of the soldiers were coming to Sydney for R&R. American soldiers or Australians both? No, American soldiers. And they were telling us the most horrific stories you could imagine about their survival and how they did survive. And so it made my stance or our stance about the war even stronger. So I heard some incredible stories. And also, but the upside of that was, you know, we'd all go out dancing and they'd teach us all the new dancers from America. And that was fun. (laughs) You didn't realize it at the time, but you weren't really traveling solo on that flight from America to Sydney. When did you realize that and how? I realized it when, because I was relatively petite 
And I thought, gee, my boobs are getting big, aren't they? And anyway, so I just didn't feel quite right. And Sandra McKenzie, the lady that, that auditioned me in Boston, said, gee, you're getting chubby. And I burst into tears. I'm thinking, why am I crying? Anyway, I thought to myself, I think, I think I'm pregnant. So I, I called my mom and I said, Mama, I think I'm pregnant. She said, yes, I've been waiting for you to tell me because I can tell by your pictures. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. And she said, look, you've chosen a very strange career. And my suggestion to you is to keep that baby. And when you've got love on your side, you can do anything. Podcast. Broadcast. This is Conversations with Sarah Kanoski. Hear more conversations anytime on the ABC Listen app. Or go to abc.net.au slash conversations. So, Marsha, you were 16 and had come to Australia to perform in the musical Hair when you found out that you were pregnant, something your mum back in the States had already guessed just by looking at photos of you. What happened next? Then I went to a doctor in Elizabeth Bay and I got an examination. He said, oh, Mrs. Um, I said, no, it's not Mrs. It's Miss. He said, well, you're six and a half months pregnant. That's that's a big thing to take in at 16. What, what, well, what how scared that? were you? What, what were you well, thinking? Well, I wasn't so much scared. I thought, what the hell? No, I wasn't scared. I, I just thought, oh, gosh. And I was always taught to be responsible. So, you know, I, and I, I will say this until I die. I do not condone teenage pregnancy, not, especially not now anymore. You know, and if you, if you have a baby now, th- there really is no need. Back in the day, to try and be on a contraception was almost impossible when I was a kid. And so if you want to be a mom, go for it. But I can tell you one thing, life as you knew it changes, <laughs> you know. And to be a teenager with a baby, you can no longer be a baby yourself. You're now responsible for a human being. What about the father, Marsha? Did you tell him? Like, was he on the scene no, at all? absolutely not, no. No need. Yeah. <laughs> I think about, like, at 16, that age to... to get pregnant, to have a baby, it must have really shaped your attitudes to sex. Well, it probably warped my attitudes. I don't know if it shaped it. <laughs> Definitely warped. Like, it's like it everything my... the nuns warned me about happened to you. Yeah, like, that's, like... but, yeah <laughs> that's an amen for me. But we, we you know, look, I, I um, yeah, I wouldn't be here. I wouldn't be the person that you're speaking to if I hadn't had my daughter, Denny. Mm. I wouldn't. You know, I mean, when someone's sick all over you and, you know, and doesn't sleep and you've worked an all night and you come home from work and the baby doesn't want to settle. And I remember calling my mother one day saying, Mom, the baby, she's just not sleeping and she's crying. She said, have you fed her? I said, yeah, I fed her. She said, is she dry? I said, yeah, she's dry. She said, she got colic? No. She said, okay, tell you what you do, swaddle her and then close the door. <laughs> And it worked. It worked. Thanks, Ma. You know, yeah, it worked. So, but like I said, when you've got love on your side, Sarah, and you know, like my mom didn't say she was ashamed of me mm-hmm. or anything like that. And quite a few of the other girls in the show had had babies. And 
Because of that, we had a support system because quite a few baby hair babies were born. So you kept performing in yeah. hair right up to when your daughter was born? The or? night before I had her. The yeah. night before? Yeah, but um, I had my, um, my uh, the, the guy that delivered her, he came to see me. He came to see the show and I said, what shouldn't I do? And there was just one one thing that we were doing in, in the show where we sort of on our knees and jumping up and landing down again. And he said, that's what you shouldn't do. <laughs> and so I just stopped that one bit of choreography. And then um, I, I, I left the show and went to the hospital because she was overdue too. So I went to, and they induced her. But um, I actually went to Crown Street Women's Hospital and had that little baby thing. <laughs> She's so cute. Gosh, was there cute. anyone there with you? Like your mom no, wasn't there? Your no. teenager? I, I, I had a friend. I had a friend that hung with me, but you know, you know. I mean, and then I remember, God bless this woman. She said to me, the nurse, she said, you're going to hear a lot of screaming in here. It's not right. It's not real. And it doesn't hurt that bad. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, she said some people, some people from certain parts of, um, you know, certain nationalities think the louder they are, the better the baby's going to be. <laughs> and I'll never forget that. That was like, oh, thank you, because it's really noisy in here. You so know? <laughs> birth wasn't a terrible, terrifying thing for you, giving birth? 15 minutes labor. What? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Of, and of, then, of all your credits, Marsha, I think that's what should that's lead your cool one. bio. Yeah. <laughs> but I was fit. I was fit as a Mali bull. I was fit. You know, and then I went, Denny and I stayed in the hospital that night, I think, and then they took took us to a, um, a convalescence home and we stayed there. And then I think nine or 12 days later, I was back on stage. Amazing. When you look yeah. back at that young woman who's got mm. such, you know, energy, such power, what do you, what do you think about her? Me? Yeah, this Marsha. Nothing who, much. That's no. just what you do. I know her, <laughs> so I'm not impressed with her. Yeah, no, but I mean, I'm really proud that I've been able to have a baby and, and maintain and sustain a career. How did you practically make it all work, particularly in those those early months, early years with, with your little girl? Probably with great difficulty, but, you know, I, I was being paid an amazing wage, so that allowed me to have a nanny. So I, I was allowed, you know, I could go to work and not worry about it. And then there were days some of us would bring the babies into the theatre as well. And she'd what, she'd hang out at the theatre? She'd be in the bassinet under the stairs, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's no surprise yeah. she turned into a musician, I guess. Yeah, you're not and, wrong. But I used to really um, make sure she was in a noisy environment all the time because nothing's worse than, shh, the baby's sleeping. So it's like, girlfriend, you know, we're, we're, we're in this noisy area together, you know. So I'd take her and, you know, make sure, even in restaurants, I'd, I'd put her under the table and make sure that the restaurant was nice and noisy. And so she'd just sleep, you know. She and, was a good baby. She was a very good baby. And very it, good. it's not like you were, you know, living a quiet life in the suburbs, because even after no. hair, this is the rise of disco and you were living in the heart of things in King's Cross. What was yeah. that like? Oh, it's a great place. Like I said, you know, and the soldiers that were hanging in the cross were really great. It's always been a, a great a place with a great pulse, the cross. I, I've always really enjoyed people say, oh, it's dangerous. Well, yeah, compared to what? Times Square? <laughs> nah. <laughs> so after your run in hair, you were then in, in Jesus Christ Superstar, and then you're then building your own pop career, which was just great guns. You were voted Australia's Queen of Pop three years running, which, you know, forget the English monarchy, Marsha. This is the real deal. This is what the people have chosen. Thank you. You know, back in the day, people used to actually go and buy the TV week, find an envelope, fill out that form, find the stamp, and then find a mailbox. That's huge. They really cared. 
They really cared. And, you know, people say, how did it feel? I had already adopted Australia as my own. I, I'd, I loved it here. And then I wasn't a citizen then. I was still a permanent resident. And um, when I got that accolade, I thought, oh, gosh, they love me as much as I love them. That was really nice. So was there a moment when you realised, oh, I guess, I, I guess this is home now. I'm not returning to the States. This is where I'm yeah, going to be. Yeah, probably about a year, a year, a year and a half into being here because I liked it. And it's a, a very nice lifestyle. And then my mother came out several times and I said, Ma, because that's when it used to, you know, to fly to Australia and back to America used to cost your first child and every wage you've ever had, you know. (laughs) I said, Ma, you need to make up your mind because this is costing me a lot of money. And so luckily she really liked it here as well. And um, she came and lived here. So there were three generations of Heinz women living under one roof. You, your mom and and your daughter, Denny. How Mm -hmm. How did that go? Was it a peaceful place? No. I, no, I was a common enemy. Oh, no. No. And my, my, my mother would say, oh, the baby. I'd say, Ma, the baby's 22. <laughs> okay. <laughs> the baby is 22. So, you know, um, my my daughter and my mom just adored each other. But that grandmother thing, that's huge. I, I, didn't, ex- I didn't experience it, but it's pretty big, you know, mm. like, you know, they'll move mountains for their babies. Family has always obviously been such an important thing to you, Marsha. But yes. In 1981, when you were on tour, you got a call from your mum with some really terrible news. What did she need to tell you? Oh, look, the thing was, we had a code happening, so we had rules, and I called her. She never called me. And as soon as she called me, I said, so what's wrong with the baby? What's wrong with Denny? And she said, no, it's not Denny, it's your brother. She said, your brother's dead, and um, you will go and bury him. I'm not going to leave Australia. I'm not going to leave Denny. Mm-hmm. And also, I buried my mum and dad within 14 days of each other and your dad. So it's time that you grow up and you learn how to do this. Wow. So I said, okay. You know, my mum was, po- was powerful. The more I think about it, I think, wow. And she was the youngest of 13 children. And to, to, to lose her mum and dad, that, you know, and she said that he died of a broken heart, you know. So you had you had to go over what was mm-hmm. that plane trip like? It must have been Shitty. heartbreaking. Whoops, did I say that? <laughs> you were allowed to say it that in the circumstances. The worst. And you know, but I had this epiphany on the plane. I went, everybody's clinking champagne glasses and laughing and hooting and hollering. And I went, Don't they know my brother's dead? Mm-hmm. Oh, is that that saying? Life goes on. Mm-hmm. And I sat there and I thought, okay, so they don't know. Life goes on. No matter what happens, life goes on. Luckily, I have an aunt in New York, and I mentioned her daughter, Donna, who's in Washington. And my aunt was a laboratory technician in um, New York. And so she flew to Boston and helped me with all the difficulties of burying Dwight. Had you been aware that he was struggling with his mental health? No, no, no. I mean, boys, girls talk. Girls tend to talk a lot more. And he, he just, and I said to my mom after the fact, I said, I didn't know. She said, no, he'd been de- depressed for many years, Masha, but he was very, very good at um, not showing it, just being a boy. Boys don't, you know, girls, we're used to being poked and prodded from a very young age. And, and, and boys see, I remember my brother crying one day about something and he's punching himself. And I said, we were kids, like a mm. 10, 11. I said, why are you doing, why? He said, boys aren't supposed to cry. And I said, well, you know, you got tear ducts. So 
it's okay. You can cry. No, boys are. So boys are like that. That's what boys are like. Mm, I hope that's changing. And, you know, to, lose, to lose someone so young, how, how has that grief for you changed over the years? Like, do you, do you find yourself thinking of him much now? Or? Yeah, I've got pictures of my brother. You know, mm. I, I have pictures of him. But he lay in state for several days. And so we had big chats. I told him what I thought. Okay, so, <laughs> yeah. You know, but I, I really thought that he and I would sit on um, a balcony somewhere in Jamaica in, in, in rocking chairs and talk about life, but um, it wasn't to be. But I had a wonderful brother. Music is is a tough industry to mm-hmm. keep slogging away in, and, and you had a, a pretty ugly dispute with your record label that went on for a number of years and you had to step back from the industry mm-hmm. while Denny was a teenager. How was that? Was it hard not to be doing the thing that you'd been doing since you were a little kid next to that radio? No, not really because, you know, life is timing and synchronicity and Denny was becoming a teenager and it was best that I was home. Because of her grandmother, you know, I think it was best that I was the, the bad cop <laughs> and I was the bad cop. You know, I remember coming home one day and uh, this boy's climbing out of my window. <laughs> and I went, excuse me. He said, yeah, we all go in that way. I said, oh, oh do you now? And so I've always I've, I've always liked building. I've always, I mean, I love having my own like toolkit. So I went downstairs to my toolkit and got some hammer, a hammer and some nails <laughs> <laughs> I went, Danny, what the hell are you doing? Oh, well, you know, no, I don't know. You're going to stay in your room for the rest of your life. You know? <laughs> You're did, grounded, Danny. You're grounded. Did you cause your mum that much angst when you were a no, teenager? No. Because I was totally into music. No. So, you know, my friends wanted to go out and hang in Boston and drink and stuff. And they'd say, come on, we're going to go and blah, 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 blah. We got a cobbler. And I'd say, you know, I'm listening to this song and I really, yeah, you were listening to it last week. Come on, let's go. Now I'm going to stay home and listen to this. So so music was my was my everything, really. Well, your daughter did follow your footsteps and went she into did. music. And she mm-hmm. had the role of Mary Magdalene in Jesus yep. Christ Superstar, just like yep. you did. What yep. kind of advice did you give her? None. Or have you, none. What? Advice? She's going to listen to me. <laughs> yeah, are you joking? Are you joking? You know, I mean, what would I know? Well, and also, you know, I don't. I was never preached at, so I'm not preachy. I mean, if I see something wrong, I'll say, "Hey, but by the way." But I, I, you know, like this is her reality. This is how. This is her life, and you know, I did all that I could to try and still good into her, and I know my mom did too, and some of the good people that we had around us as well. Because when when I was working, I was very rarely around musicians. I was always home with friends and doing arty things and, you know, music. So I just hope that all that uh, we instilled in her, she's taken out into the world and becoming the 53-year-old person that she is. I can't believe. (laughs) Your baby. That baby's 53 now. 53? How bad? (laughs) Yep. Well, you came back to music in a big way, Marsha, as a mm-hmm. as a judge on the hit show Australian Idol. Did yeah. you see yourself in some of those young contestants? Yeah, there but for the grace of God go I. You know, they just wanted to be singers. And look, you know, like it, it's a different animal even today to the, it was when I first did Idol, you know, because social media wasn't really happening as yet. But there were certain bits the kids were reading, and I'm saying to them, don't don't read that stuff. These people don't know you. Not only that, Sarah, being plucked from obscurity and set on television 
in front of the, the whole country and everybody had an opinion. Australian Idol was a huge show and um, it was hard. And I actually found it very difficult in the beginning to, to judge other people. But then having said that, I've had very good people around me. Not, not, not everyone around me has been great or encouraging, but the ones that were, I remember. And I do believe that you, you get far more out of people if you're kind to them. I think to be nasty, you have to think about it. You have to think about all the nasty things that you could say to hurt them. I can't be bothered because you got you got to try and you know recall your that anger. And I think anger, you're kind of losing control, and I don't like to think that I lose control. I guess the flip side is there must have been moments when you were sitting in that judge's chair and your heart just leapt hearing a voice. Yeah, you know, you could see when the the kids got it. You just see this light in their eyes, and I'd think, oh, I know that light. Yeah, you know, and, and they'd had chosen the right song to to showcase their voice and things like that. It was it was wonderful to watch the metamorphosis of these these kids. It was mm. great. Your beautiful mum passed away during the filming of Australian mm-hmm. Idol. What kind of presence is she in your life now, Marsha? Oh, look, you know, I talk to my mother regularly because I don't think she's ever left me, you know, even if I'd like. She, my mother died in my arms, and I think that was that beautiful circle of life thing mm-hmm. that happens, you know. She held me when I came in, and I held her when she left. And my mother was a very large influence in my life and one of the great loves of my life. And I remember telling her I'd gotten the show. And she said, you know, you're going to be very good at that, Masha. I said, you reckon, Masha? She said, yeah, I really do. I really I think you're going to like that. And so, you know, I, I, I did Australian Idol. And it was, we never knew, Sarah, that it was going to be as popular as it turned out to be, you know. And I remember doing the auditions in Perth. We just finished with Dicko and, and Mark. Mark Holden was quite used to stardom. But Dicko was saying, oh, I think uh, when I go back home, I'm going to go to a pub. I said, I think when you go back home, you won't be going to many pubs, man. (laughs) You're going to have a profile that's going to be amazing. You'd already experienced stardom. Mm -hmm. Was it different with Australian Idol? Yeah, it was bigger. Bigger. Yeah, because television. Television is an incredible medium. And I'd get on planes and pilots would talk to me and people in the airport, people cleaned the room would talk to me. Idol tell me about the songs they liked, you know. Probably do a demo for you whether you wanted it or not sometimes. (laughs) It was fascinating. It It was huge. It was big. It was big. And I had been told back in the day before Idol started, I'd been advised by a good friend of mine who's just passed away. His name is Brian Walsh. And Brian Walsh is part of our think tank, you know. And um, he said to my manager, Peter, he said, you know, this is an incredible show coming to Australia. It's it's called American Idol, but they're changing it to Australian Idol. And if Marsha gets approached to do it, my suggestion is she should do it because I think it'll be a great vehicle. And lo and behold, it has been. What's the think tank? The think tank are all the people that are around Peter and I. You know, my think tank. So, And I have to always tell people, it's not just me. Yeah, I have to turn up for the gig and I have to try and stay as healthy as I can. But, you know, all the all the, the people who do the publicity, all the people, all the, the wardrobe, the my band, you know, like, and we all talk about stuff. You know, the tour manager, the lighting director. The, it's a think tank. So we all... You know, we all get together and work things out. You and your think tank are all heading out on tour as part of the 50th anniversary celebration of your music. How do you like being on stage these days? What's it feel oh, like? Oh, I love it. I'm a show-off. What's wrong? <laughs> what, what are you saying? <laughs> I love it. You know, I just, 
I absolutely, what I've always Why? loved Why? What do you love about it? What's it give um, you? The adrenaline rush. It's, it's, you know, there's no drug on earth that could ever give you this high. And especially when you've done a good show and people are singing and they're applauding and it's wonderful. You know, it, it's great to be, a, to be giving. They say the worst thing about giving it, it feels good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and do you ever let yourself sort of have that sliding doors moment, Marsha, and think back, you know, if you hadn't come to Australia or if you nah. hadn't been allowed to, what life might have been like? No, I don't dwell. I don't, I don't dwell in, um, um, hindsight, excuse the pun, is twenty twenty. but I'm aware of what's happened and I'm aware that the choices I've made so far have been very good. And that's once again because of the think tank and the people around me and my manager and, you know, my mum back in the day and my friends. And uh, look, my friends aren't impressed with Marsha Hines. This is, here's a great story, Sarah. So my mother loved, adored Tina Turner. And so we're at a live show, you know. She's about to come on and she said, Masha, I said, yeah. She said, you're good. She's great. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and I laughed because she was right. You know, what the hell, you know. But, you know, only a mother could say that. But, you know, like, so just to have people around you, you know, and they've never allowed me to let my feet leave the ground. And I think to try and stay grounded, it's a pretty crazy career pretty crazy, but, you know, I get through it through laughter, love and understanding and good people. And is it something you want to keep doing? Oh, yeah. Until I'm an embarrassment to myself and all my friends. Yeah. but um, <laughs> I can't imagine that happening. Well, Marcia. no, but I, I think I'd pull up stumps before then. But um, I, I'll do it for as long as I still find it exciting. And I do. I, I find it exciting. And, and um, it's never the same, you know, like you might sing uh, the same song for years, but you don't sing it the same. You, you know, you find something new in it. And I refer to music as being like a gift that you get in a box. And you open the box and then you, you look inside, there's another box. And then you look inside, another box appears. And you know what I mean? Like it's just perpetually, it nourishes me perpetually. I love it. Nourishes you and the people who, who listen and get to see oh, you on stage. You. Thank you so much for, for being welcome. our guest. You are more than welcome. That was really a nice chat. You've been listening to a podcast of Conversations with Sarah Kanoski. For more Conversations interviews, head to the website abc.net.au slash conversations. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.